Right. Um, good afternoon. Welcome to the Institute for Government. I'm Julian McRae. I'm Deputy Director here at the Institute. And welcome to the launch of the second edition of our Performance Tracker, uh, a publication jointly between the Institute for Government and SIPFA, our dear colleagues at SIPFA. Um, we have today a um, presentation of the actual uh, uh, report. Uh, my uh, colleague Emily uh, will be taking you through all the details of that. Um, and uh, our colleague Gillian from, um, uh, from SIPFA will be taking us through uh, some thoughts from international governments and international perspectives on some of that as well. We will be joined by Nikki Morgan, who is making her way here at this moment. So will be joining us very shortly. Uh, but we thought we'd start off and kick off uh, with, the, uh, with the presentation. Uh, Emily, do you want to take us away? Uh, hello, everyone. Can you hear me all right? Yes. Thank you very much for coming. Good afternoon. Um, that's me. Okay. Philip Hammond is by reputation a man after our own heart here at the Institute and at SIPFA for the simple reason that we all love a good spreadsheet. Uh, in this, our second edition of Performance Tracker, we've analysed over 100 data series across nine different public services to give a consistent high-level account of their performance. Um, now, that's still not all of them, but before you go running for the door, don't panic. Uh, over the next 15 minutes or so, I'm going to refer to only about 15 of them. If you want to know about the other 85, you can read the report. Our judgment is that the government has become trapped in a reactive spending cycle. Missing warning signs, allowing problems to mount and responding to operational or political crises with emergency cash injections. Now, we estimate that the government is currently spending more than 10 billion pounds over five years in this way. Now that number includes things like the 1.3 billion pounds for schools that was found from elsewhere in DfE's budget this July and the 500 million of extra resources that were found for prisons this time last year. Now these are not investments. This extra money is being used to keep services going in their current state, not to solve the underlying problems which allowed those pressures to build up in the first place. And in too many cases, the government lacks a clear strategy for what will happen when the money runs out. Without action to change the trajectory that some of these services are on, the government will remain trapped in this reactive cycle, spending more money than it originally planned, but without seeing services improve. <coughs> That's why we're calling on government to improve the way it makes spending decisions by subjecting the assumptions underpinning them to independent scrutiny. Now, we've expanded our analysis in this, our second edition of PT, adding four key public services to the ones we first covered in the spring. So we've added GPs to our chapter on health and social care, um, which also includes hospitals and adult social care. And um, anyone who's seen me speak before will know I absolutely loathe all stock images of social care, so that is a picture of me and my nan. Uh, <laughs> we've added criminal courts, uh, to our law and order chapter alongside the police and prisons. We've continued our analysis of schools. We've added a chapter on neighbourhood services, so things like bin collection, road maintenance and trading standards that are delivered at a local level and make a big impact to the environment that people live in. And finally, we've added a chapter on UK visas and immigration to begin our tracking of Brexit-facing public services. So. What's the story? 
We're now into our third Parliament of Fiscal Consolidation, which began all the way back in 2010 with these guys, when the coalition set out to control spending on services as a means of reducing the deficit. Now, there's a range of different ways that the government can control spending on services. They can uh, decide to reduce the scope of the service they provide. So for example, um, using sentencing reform to shrink the prison population or by rationing access to certain health services. They can also abandon certain performance targets and allow the quality of services to fall. But for the most part, the coalition decided they didn't want to do this. They pledged to control spending whilst maintaining or even expanding and improving the scope and quality of services. And our analysis suggests that they were initially successful. There are clear signs in the data of efficiencies across services in this early period. Broadly speaking, government really did manage to control spending and maintain quality up to around 2013-14. However, by and large, this wasn't achieved by long-term transformational reforms to the way these services operate, making better use of technology, for example, or improving the interface between services. Instead, they relied on short-term belt-tightening measures like wage freezes and staff cuts. And midway through that parliament, the pressure started to bite in areas where the belt-tightening approach proved insufficient. That's when things like hospital waiting times and prison violence started to creep up. Now, in 2015, these guys got rid of their third wheel, but continued with the same strategy. In the 2015 spending review, the settlements laid out by George Osborne implied a reduction in day-to-day -day government spending of over £10 billion between 2015-16 and 19-20. And now, our new government remains committed to implementing those spending reductions, uh, whilst also delivering, to quote the Conservative Manifesto, world-class public services. But 2017 is a very different world from 2010. The failure of these governments to make a success of more transformative changes, or to make explicit national decisions regarding the quality and scope of services have drastically limited Philip Hammond's room for manoeuvre and trapped this government in a reactive spending cycle. Now, making large-scale changes and driving politically challenging reforms takes time. So even if the government began in earnest right now to drive such difficult reforms, there are pressures in prisons and in hospitals which cannot wait to be resolved. In these services, the cycle is at its peak and the Chancellor's options are limited to one, putting more cash in now. In adult social care and schools, the government has already made an emergency cash injection, but it needs an immediate answer to the question of what comes after the money runs out. Otherwise, we'll see the cycle repeat again. There's another group, Neighbourhood Services, the Police and UKVI, in which we have seen signs of substantial efficiencies, but where the government and the public need more information to make a coherent decision about what comes next. And finally, there are two services where the government appears to have avoided its reactive cycle in GPs and in criminal courts, and it needs to track their performance to make sure they stay that way. Now, you can read more information about all of these services in the report, and I'm just going to give you a flavour of what we found. So, the number of prisoners has remained fairly flat over the last seven years, while the number of prison officers has fallen by around a quarter. And for the first few years, prisons appear to have coped with this situation. 
but they're now in the midst of a serious operational crisis, with violence continuing to spiral upwards and prisoner numbers set to rise more than was originally forecast. Now, the MOJ announced new figures today showing uh, progress on the recruitment of prison officers. This is good news. Prisons need to recruit and retain officers as a matter of urgency. The pressures on hospitals are not quite at that level, but here the Chancellor actually, the Chancellor actually has even less room for manoeuvre. Hospitals are set to continue running a deficit. But perhaps most worryingly, there's little sign that these overspends are leading to service improvements in the key pressure points. A&E departments are no closer to meeting their four-hour waiting times target. And the latest data shows 3.9 million people waiting for non-urgent treatments, the highest the waiting list has been for a decade. Meanwhile, demand continues to rise. Emergency admissions via A&E have risen around 30% since 2009, and they're still going up. Now, it's too late for the government to do anything about this coming winter. But next winter, and the winter after that, and the winter after that, We'll see the same pattern repeat again if the government doesn't do something new to make good on the promises of the sustainability and transformation plans. Now, when the government announced an extra £2 billion for adult social care in the spring budget, they also promised a green paper to address the long-term questions around the funding and delivery of the service. Spending on social care actually fell through most of the last seven years, starting to tick up uh, following a transfer of cash from the Better Care Fund. This is despite an ageing population and growing numbers of people with long-term conditions. But the green paper has now apparently been kicked into the new year and downgraded to a consultation. Now, of course, as the so-called dementia tax debacle demonstrated, it's right that the government isn't rushing into any big changes in this area. But by failing to even begin the process, they haven't given themselves enough time to get reforms in place before the £2 billion runs out. That means they need to start work on their medium-term plan right now. In schools, the catalyst for spending was more political than operational. Schools haven't faced the same level of spending or demand pressures that we've seen in other services. So pupil-teacher ratios, for example, have stayed pretty much constant in primary and secondary. And pupil attainment data suggest that standards have remained broadly flat. Now, this year saw fierce debate over plans for a new allocation of schools funding, which would have seen some schools lose substantial chunks of their budget. This policy is still being implemented, but it didn't survive the election campaign in its original form. An extra 1.3 billion has been found from elsewhere in DfE's budget to soften the blow, but only for two years. So rather than attempt to win the argument um, over whether some schools could manage with less money, or decisively admitting defeat, the government set itself up to have the same argument again in two years' time. Before that point is reached, the government needs to either demonstrate convincingly how some schools can manage with less, or accept that budgets will have to be rethought. So in these four services, there is an immediate imperative for government to act right now, whether that's injecting more money or clarifying a medium-term plan. In some of the other services, the level of imperative is less clear because the state of the service is less clear. This is particularly the case in neighbourhood services, which have absorbed large budget reductions over the last seven years, but aren't showing the same signs of immediate distress which we've seen elsewhere. But that may well be because the national level performance data simply isn't there. 
Now, the reduction in the number of police officers in recent years is a well-known phenomenon. There are currently over 20,000 fewer police officers than there were in 2009. And there are signs that morale has suffered. There were nearly 500 more police officers on long-term sick leave in March this year than in March 2013, although we have seen a slight improvement in the last year. Now, there's growing political pressure on the government to increase the number of police officers, prompted in part, of course, by the spate of terrorist attacks in recent months. And there are other new demand pressures, particularly around cybercrime. Data suggests that, that police officers' workload is increasing, but it's by no means clear that increasing the number of police officers is the best response to the demand pressures for these new types of crime. The government needs to lay out clearly the evidence base for how and by whom it believes these types of crimes can be most effectively tackled to broaden the public debate. Now, we've also included UK visas and immigration in this category. This is the Directorate of the Home Office, which deals with the application element of immigration, um, not with enforcement. UKVI uh, used to get around 20,000 applications every quarter from EU nationals seeking documentation to certify their right to permanent residency in the UK. This started to creep up, as you can see, at the beginning of 2016, peaking at around 125,000 at the beginning of this year, before falling back down again. That's when the Home Office added a note to their website discouraging people from, from applying until the new system was in place. Now, our analysis suggests that UK visas and immigration has managed this post-referendum surge in workload without a correspondingly large rise in staff numbers or a notable fall in service quality. The Home Office aims to process applications it deems straightforward within six months, and we can see that it's continued to manage that over 98% of the time. Now, of course, when I say that quality hasn't got notably worse, that doesn't mean it was good to start off with. Over the course of 2016, over 50,000 applica applications, I think that's around 18% of the total, were deemed not straightforward, so didn't count towards this measure. And we don't know how long those 50,000 people were left waiting. Existing problems remain. Around 40% of immigration appeals against the Home Office are granted. And of course, the challenge which lies ahead is on a different scale. If it started processing them immediately, UK visas and immigration would have to process three times the application it received at its peak every single quarter between now and March 2019 in order to get through all three million UK nationals believed to be resident in the UK. To manage this level of demand, UKVI is going to have to fundamentally reform their processes and we will be tracking the progress of these efforts. And finally, it's not all doom and gloom. In GPs and criminal courts, while there are some signs of pressure, particularly around the GP workforce, the government has invested in reform before problems reached a tipping point. Its task is now to monitor the progress of these reforms, which we will continue to do in the coming years. Now, you can read more detail about these and all the other services in our report. But here's the point I want to leave you with. Only four out of our nine services are in our top two boxes, where we have identified an immediate imperative for the government to act. But that's still four too many. No government should be faced with an imperative to act unless there's a natural disaster or a similarly unpredictable event. And a single set of good decisions in this budget, even if the Chancellor does everything we're asking him to do, won't stop this from happening again. 
the government needs to improve the way it makes spending decisions, tackling over-optimistic efficiency assumptions and making it easier to notice and respond to warning signs rather than crises. That's why we're calling on government to create their own performance tracker, so the Chancellor can make informed decisions about public spending and respond to warning signs. They should publish that tracker, or at least publish the assumptions which underpin their spending decisions. Now, we're expecting the results of the independent Barber review of government efficiency soon, which should go some way towards beginning this process. But efficiency reviews have come and gone in the past. Independent scrutiny of the decisions that government makes and the assumptions underpinning them is a key part of ensuring that government works effectively. If the Chancellor really wants sound financial management to be his legacy, he should be thinking about uh, creating something more enduring, something like an OBR for public spending. Now, a lot of commentary about this budget will be focusing on the immediate issues in the headlines and what this guy is going to do about them. But we think you should be paying closer attention to this stuff, to how much effort the Chancellor is making, with the backing, of course, of his Cabinet colleagues, to tackle the difficult problems which are liable to cause them pain further down the road. Their seriousness on these long-term issues might just reveal how confident they are that they're going to make it to 2022. Thank you, Emily. Uh, I'm delighted to be joined by Nikki Morgan, who is, of course, um, chair of the Treasury Select Committee and formerly in charge of various things inside government. Um, <laughs> and um, you know, delighted to have you here, Nikki. And I wonder if you might um, give us some thoughts and responses to the report and more generally about how you see the Select Committee uh, taking things yeah. forward. Well, of course, and uh, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Apologies for, uh, for being late. And um, it's a fascinating report, and uh, thank you very much indeed for uh, sharing the, the conclusions with us. I'm here obviously as, as the new head of the Treasury uh, Select Committee, but also as a former Secretary of State for Education, so I pay particular close attention to the chapter on schools and education spending. But I'm also here as a constituency member of Parliament, because looking out across this audience, um, my worry with all these things is that it's great to discuss them here in London and close to Whitehall, but actually, who in this audience and who here watching actually have to go and explain them on the doorsteps to those who are consumers of those public services, but also who are taxpayers who are paying for those public services and working extremely hard to do so. So I don't think we should lose sight of that uh, perspective. Now, we know the government is facing mounting fiscal pressures, and the report obviously focuses on spending on public services but you could equally look at the spending on welfare services as well, uh, and a performance tracker on those would be obviously uh, helpful. Now, the Treasury Select Committee is going to be looking at household finances. That's one of the changes that I've said. Obviously, the Select Committee has often looked particularly at uh, financial services regulation, at banking, and obviously does the regular pre-appointment scrutiny and uh, scrutiny of people like the Governor of the Bank of England and the Chancellor. But I'm very keen to unpick what's really happening in the economy for households, household debt, household saving, and of course, what's happening in terms of, I say, paying those taxes and reliance on the effectiveness of public uh, services, because that's how people measure, I think, how a government is doing. And it was very noticeable to see it, obviously, in the general election, we moved on very quickly from the big issue of Brexit, which I'm afraid I will return to at the end of my remarks, to social care spending, for example, as well as school uh, funding, which is obviously a huge issue on the doorsteps <coughs> in the uh, election. 
Now, um, how acutely those spending pressures uh, are felt in government will depend, as it always does, on economic performance. If the economy outperforms expectations, then chances obviously have more headroom, headroom to spend more money um, while meeting their fiscal targets. If the economy underperforms, then of course they're going to be faced with the difficult choice of raising taxes or borrowing more or, of course, cutting public spending. Now, the OBR's latest assessment of productivity indicates that the Chancellor is unlikely to get an early Christmas present from their budget forecast. But we wait to see, obviously, what is unveiled around the 22nd of November. But I think that the IFG's conclusion that, irrespective of the economic weather, this reactive approach is misconceived is, is a really good conclusion and very useful conclusion and a good challenge for Whitehall to have <coughs> reached. Because it does highlight the report a failure to plan spending in a way that reflects how and what we want public services to deliver in the long term. And I think it also uh, needs to harness, I think it does, uh, an appetite for change in the country, which was one of the reasons that drove the June 2016 referendum result, a realisation actually things are not working in the way that many people want them to. Um, but as I said, things like social care, you know, which undoubtedly need to be tackled, there also has to first of all be an understanding of the way the current system works. And having spent a lot of time in May and June explaining this, actually, it was clear there was a basic misunderstanding of the way the current social care system works, the funding and support that is available to households, but also what needs to change to make this, the system uh, sustainable. Now, obviously, the report has 100, uh, builds on 100 data series, has 50 charts, so it really makes a very admirable attempt to quantify and analyse what the public services are delivering and how well they provide it. But, of course, that in itself highlights something, which is that it's easy or easier to measure spending and to measure inputs, but measuring the outputs is, of course, much harder. And, of course, it takes time uh, from putting money into the system, if that's what society do, to seeing what happens at the end of the process. So I was particularly interested in the school section on looking at the key stage two and key stage four results because, of course, there have been changes. It's not just about spending. There have been other changes around curriculum, around teacher recruitment that feed through into those, uh, those changes. Um, and, of course, output can be measured in, in different ways. It was, I was just thinking, uh, as I came in, Emily, I think you were talking about the better care funding. Now, of course, um, you're right, the money has gone in and it's, it's, I think it's helped in terms of getting arms of the different arms of the state talking to each other, in this case NHS and local authorities. But I can tell you from a Leicestershire point of view what I'm now seeing is that as the squeeze on NHS spending uh, continues, actually what's happening is the parties are falling out with each other about who spends what and we've seen this in stories about bed blocking and uh, spending on social care and, uh, and, and everything else. So there's a bit of a dispute going on between the NHS and local authorities who the NHS see that money and they'd like to have it back, please, uh, in order to help them deal with uh, expected winter pressures. But I think the other conclusion that the report reaches about the Treasury having a better use of data and analysis to plan public spending is absolutely right. And as a former Secretary of State, I think one of the um, uh, issues was always getting both uh, accurate data but then having it well interpreted in the departments mm -hmm. to drive future policy decisions but also future spending uh, decisions. So I think there's no doubt that the Treasury could have analysed uh, further efficiencies in uh, certain public services instead of waiting for, as you said, potential uh, crisis uh, points. Now, the report also recommends an OBR 
for public spending. We used to have this about let's take politics out of the NHS and out of education, which sounds good in practice until it's made very clear by those in the system and others, parents and patients, for example, that they do want somebody to appear at the House of Commons dispatch box and explain what went wrong. And if you agree that that's going to happen, we had this debate around the NHS Act right back at the start of the coalition government, uh, when opposition parties in particular were making it clear they wanted the Secretary of State to be hugely involved in the NHS, you immediately bring the politics straight back into it. And of course, I think um, one of the things the report can't do in a way shouldn't do, uh, but is to reflect that what the politicians have to do uh, is to then uh, add on the political realities of the way that spending decisions uh, are, um, are, are made. But of course, what the report does, and I welcome as a, now a chair of a, of a select committee, is it gives us more information to be able to quiz uh, the Chancellor and Ministers and others about when they appear uh, before us. Um, we will obviously, as a select committee, be scrutinising the autumn budget uh, and be asking the questions of the Chancellor and many other bodies uh, about that, including the OBR. Finally, I just want to end with, obviously, there is another short-term spending, well, perhaps not so short-term spending commitment, which is our exit from the EU. The Chancellor and the Prime Minister both made it clear last week that the government's already set aside a quarter of a billion pounds to begin to prepare for contingencies uh, in case we obviously leave with no deal. But also, we know we're going to have to make changes to things like custom services uh, as well, and we as a select committee have quizzed HMRC already uh, about that. Um, but of course, one of the questions, and maybe it'll be picked up in next year's report, is how the spending on uh, our exit from the EU um, actually is looking in practice and how effective it actually is uh, in terms of the input and what we're seeing for that money. So thank you very much. It's always useful to have more data and more information and a great pleasure to be here today. Great. Thank you, Nikki. Uh, and I'm sure we'll come back to various of the uh, points you've raised there and we, if we move to question and answer. Um, Julian, do you want to um, just pick up on uh, some of the aspects of the report and also, you know, the, there are many other governments who face these sort of things and other things going on that you, you see in your role in SIPFA. Uh, you know, some thoughts for um, us? Absolutely. Well, before I start, I'd just like to say, you know, congratulations to the, the team involved in writing this report. It's an excellent report and, you know, it's an independent, evidence-based report outside of government and, and parliament um, addressing financial and non-financial um, information. Um, in terms of this week, I just want to draw upon a couple of experiences this week that relate to, to the report. Um, earlier this week, I was talking to a group of international visitors from public accounts committees. And the talk was about the common obstacles to public spending. So in other words, why don't we actually get the, the outcomes that we um, desire? And I rattled off the usual sort of suspects, you know, poor procurement practices, waste, uh, bad financial management, poor governance. And I actually thought, well, efficiencies, thinking about the relentless push on public services to achieve um, efficiencies mean that in some instances, public services are really sort of at the tipping point um, in many cases. And I think that's highlighted um, in the report. So that was the first related um, event. The second related event was this morning where I was due to talk on uh, Talk Talk Radio about the, the report and, and I was actually dumped because um, Brexit and the amount of debt that we need to, to pay was, was going to be the theme of uh, today. 
Well, I would have thought that the public would be more interested in knowing about how their services are performing, and that would have been much more sort of engaging debate. So there's, there we go in terms of two instances there. I think it's fair to say we have known for some time that the public sector has faced mounting uh, resource pressures, um, even before the 2010 spending review. So successive <coughs> governments have tried to um, instill an efficiency culture um, throughout public services. So if you go back to, I think it was around 2003-04, you had the Gershon um, review, which was a push on efficiencies, mainly in the back office for the back office functions, such as finance, human resources, IT, etc. But at that time, um, there was a mandate really not to touch frontline services. And I think this report shows that there's been a real shift there in relation to um, achieving efficiencies. As Emily said, quite rightly said, I mean, although austerity provides a backdrop to, to the report, it, it's not the case in all of the services. So all of the services haven't received the same uh, cut in um, spending as, as, you know, it hasn't been right across the board. But for me, the report raises a number of key challenges and, and questions. And, and some of these are actually highlighted in there in terms of how can we break away from short-termism? How can we break away from the short-term political cycle in relation to making policy and planning decisions going forward? So how can we build in medium-term term policy and financial planning making and, and the longer-term um, policy making uh, too? Um, we seem to be, um, as what's already been said, in relation to moving from a crisis to cash to repeat crisis, cash uh, sort of environment. And we really need to move away from that. I think the short-term uh, political cycle doesn't help in, in, in that way. But also, it was never uh, the purpose of the report to, to highlight what the uh, policy plan sh should look like or be, but there's a real absence there. I get a sense, no sense of what are the big plans for tackling service areas such as adult and social, um, adult and health services um, going forward. Really no sense of, of that throughout the report. And how are we going to establish and ensure sustainable public services going forward where the funding streams match um, service delivery? These are all big questions for, for government and, and the Chancellor going forward. And indeed, squeezing, how can we squeeze any more out of the system? Is digitalization going to work? Is transformational change going to work? What is it going to, to look like um, in the future? Now, Emily knows this, and we've talked about this as we went through the report. My desire was to, to have a risk register there. And actually, if you go through the report, looking at amber, yellow and, and green, you could probably attach those against the nine service areas that are outlined um, in the report, but she wouldn't let me have that. Um, <laughs> yeah, she was, she was controller. But again, you know, having the you know, what's not quite in the report, it is in a few instances, but what are the mitigating factors against those, those, those risks going forward? Maybe she'll have it in the next report, perhaps for Brexit. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> anyway, so in terms of, just to, to really sort of conclude, I mean, the strengths of this um, report are really in terms of whether the recommendations are taken mm -hmm. forward into the existing um, efficiency review by government and indeed by parliament. I mean, th 
parliamentary select committees should be using and taking this report as they undertake their departmental um, scrutiny reviews, be using it to hold um, government departments to, to account. So the real strength is, is there. And from a SIPFA perspective, um, we of course have a number of our members, uh, professionally qualified accountants working in and across central government and public services more, more generally. In terms of, they have been working in a different environment, a resource constrained environment, and you know, they face with having to pull rabbits out of hats, and it's a question of how long they can go on to, to do that. But just to conclude, I would say, in terms of SIPFA and our members are here and they're prepared to play their part. Thank Excellent. you. Thank you, Gillian. Right, um, so um, various things, themes coming up there. Um, I mean, at the heart of this, uh, as Nikki reminds us, you know, we will never take the politics out of this. Mm -hmm. um, and I suppose one of the questions um, we have at the Institute is how do you help make that politics work a little bit better? How do you make sure that we're actually, when I think in any spending review I've ever come across, ministers always make tough decisions. It's just, are they making the tough decisions that are actually really going to be the ones that affect the services? Uh, so I think that's one of the themes um, that we'll, I'm sure, want to pick up on. Um, but I think also in the particular services, we try to draw out this sort of feeling across government and give, um, I, think we, I, I think Emily was quite right to resist the slight uh, general sweeping generalization of a rag rating across the uh, complexity of these but we have sort of drawn out and highlighted particular ones um, and others where actually I think I, I had a conversation with people where they've been quite surprised and actually the coverage of this report it's often the ones where we're saying it's not actually that bad mm. uh, which tends to be the message that gets completely lost uh, in the uh, in the coverage so again a, a sort of theme about how this helps and plays um, but I just wanted to throw it open now to people for questions, comments, and thoughts uh, that people have uh, in this room. Also, if anyone's in next door, uh, if you want to pop through, uh, I'll take questions uh, from there as well. Um, but who wants to uh, just kick us off? Uh, start with a gentleman just behind. Yep, and then come forward to you. Very interested in the idea of an OBR for public services. Um, the the idea has. Uh, oh, so uh, could you just say who you are? Sorry. I'm Christopher Hood. Uh, I led a research program on public services in the 2000s, in which we looked at very much the same kind of data that we've heard at about today. I think the idea of a, of an OBR for public services is a very interesting one, um, but I wonder if the speakers would agree that any such institution would be sitting right on the San Andreas fault <laughs> of British <laughs> politics. And how exactly, uh, uh, clever politicians as you are, are you going to construct such a machine? Thank you. Okay, thanks, Christopher. And then come to David. Uh, David Walker, uh, Guardian Public Contributing Editor. Um, any sense from the panel of the contours under those service aggregates of what's happening to the process of provision, specifically outsourcing, given that outsourcing has now become more politicised because of commitments made by, rhetorically at least, by the Labour Party, any sense of how far those service profiles have moved either against the outsourcing of services or, uh, as some evidence suggests, particularly the health service, actually increasing? Okay, thank you. And then I think there was a question just over there. 
Uh, Andrew Hudson, uh, now a serial non-exec, but director of public services in the Treasury 2009 to 2011. So uh, since then, you, you talked about uh, the uh, 2010 spending review and not then leading to uh, transformation. Interested, and it may bear on David's question on the, the trajectories, that since, um, since 2010, some services are doing not too bad, as Julian just said. Others that had similar levels of cuts are in serious trouble. And <coughs> how far is that because transformation was tried and failed or wasn't tried, or because demand has gone up, or because um, something else has, has gone wrong in the ones that are now in serious difficulty? Excellent, thank you. Right, um, Emily, do you want to start off with uh, some of those questions? Um, yeah. Obion for spend, how's how yeah. it going to survive the? Yeah, so I mean, so let so kind of let's be clear. Our suggestion is for an OBR for public spending, which is not the same thing as an OBR for public services. Um, and so, what we specifically think that this organisation or an organisation needs to do is scrutinise the assumptions which underpin. Uh, spending decisions. So, you know, the when uh, you know allocations are made to services, within them are baked in assumptions about how uh, far efficiencies can be delivered. Okay, for how little money can this level of demand be met? Um, and you know, as we've kind of argued last time, there is of course a really strong temptation for over opt for optimism to get worked into these assumptions. Not in any great way. It's the accumulation of small assumptions which might be defensible on their own, but when you put them all together become something that kind of isn't realistic. So, you know, for us, the job of the OBR for public spending is to say simply, are the assumptions on which you've based your decision going to allow you to do what you say you're going to do? That's something slightly different, I think, from kind of saying, what should you do, which is, of course, a political question. So I think that might kind of, you know, circumvent some of that. That's great. Uh, Nikki, do you want to pick up on any of those, but particularly your sort of sense of um, what happened? What did it with transformation? Well, it's, it's it, you know it's very um, interesting, and I think your point is you said you, you know you're never going to get rid of the, the politics, and you're never going to get rid of uh, unexpected circumstances. Um, so it's very hard to do the the, the forecasting, and I think um, in terms of transformation, I was just thinking about um, so some of the spending decisions that we made in terms of the 2015 spending review. Um, obviously were predicated on the basis of we knew we were preparing a white paper that was published in March mm -hmm. 2016 about the whole school system um, and uh, you know what we were going to do in terms of more schools became academies, more multi-academy trusts, uh, looking at the funding formula and then of course politics got in the way in the form of the uh, EU referendum, uh, change of government um, and completely different sets of decisions made but you've already baked into that point the, some of the spending decisions and then actually the politics uh, changes. Um, so I suspect that's partly to do with, with transformation. The other thing is, is of course, um, the knock-on effect of changing other services. So I look, I haven't been in the Justice Department, but there's obviously lots of talk about rehabilitation um, and the, the changes according to that. But then actually you've got to, to I suspect, uh, look at what's going to happen in terms of demand for prison uh, places, uh, you know, demand for alternative provision education, so how many people are you keeping out of prison, you know, all of that. And, and I think, going back to Julian's challenge, what, what can you know, organisations like the IFG do, um, actually uh, highlighting these issues and creating a public pressure which politicians have to respond to, and also pointing out, and you will know if you've been in the, the Treasury, I mean, government exists in silos, and getting, uh, well, ministers are better about talking to each other, 
um, but actually uh, getting uh, departments to talk to each other and work out. So again, you know, the challenges of, um, I was thinking about this as coming over. So one of the, I had an email from a constituent this morning about the cost of school transport. Um, so actually for households, what's happened is, you know, obviously local government budgets, you know, have been, have been undoubtedly squeezed. So they've then made decisions about what they don't, or they aren't required to fund. Therefore, that means that the costs of transport are now put onto households. So that then has a knock-on effect on household spending. You know, was that factored in uh, when we were thinking about spending on schools and, and the, the councils were thinking about spending on um, local government services? Probably not to that degree. Um, on the question of the OBR, I'd rather than create a new body, I'd sort of want to see an expansion of the existing body bodies remitting into this area. But we do know what happens when uh, you mix politics with reporting on policy performance, thinking about the Audit Commission and what happened to, to it in terms of mixing, mixing the two there. So I think caution has to, to be taken. In terms of the profile on uh, procurement, um, I mean, that has changed significantly over the past few decades, as you're probably aware. So if you're thinking about it, it's about a third of uh, public spending. Public spending's about 730-odd uh, billion pounds a year, and about a third of that is on procurement. And if I think back to um, when I was a, a, an auditor a long time ago, but if you looked at a typical sort of local authority, 80% of its spending would be more or less uh, staffing. Mm. Um, now, you know, that's considerably reduced. You'll find around about 56% in most authorities are spent on commissioning of services. But also, of course, what you don't have there is where the money spent in public services is subject to value for money audits. It's not the same case for uh, the procured services. Um, that are commissioned out, so they haven't got to undergo a value for money audit the same as its uh, public sector counterparts, even though they're delivering uh, public services. Excellent, thank you. Um, and actually, Andrew, just on your, your point, um, and because you, of course, were responsible for the 2010 spending review, which we're relatively, <laughs> fairly positive about here, <laughs> uh, I think the, the underlying thing that I think actually I would say comes out is why, why do some services do better? I suspect it's to do largely to do with the amount of inefficiency they started out with. Mm -hmm. I think our mechanisms took out quite a lot of inefficiency, whether they were capable of truly driving sustained, transformed efficiency, I think is the real question going forward. Um, I think it's a broad, a broad generalisation. Having stopped rag rating, I've just introduced broad generalisations. <laughs> Yes, we'll leave a question. Start here and then take two at the back. Okay. Um, Simon Judge, Government Finance Function and a member of SIPFA. Um, slightly nerdy question for, for you, Nikki. Uh, I wonder if you have any thoughts about how select committees are going to work together uh, with this new role that you envisage for your committee. I think quite a positive development over the last few years has been getting departmental select committees to look at issues that previously they just left to the PAC. It's all to do with the accounts of the BFM, etc. I think there's a, you know, is there a risk with your interest in those issues that they will say, oh, well, you know, the Treasury Select Committee will look at how good planning is across the system. We don't need to worry about it anymore. Great, thank you. And then, yeah. Hi, Duncan Chubson. I work for Grant Making Trust, but I previously worked in central and local government. Um, Three very quick points. First, on the OBR, it would have to be better at its forecast than the current OBR, having discovered 
it didn't calculate productivity, right? So that's a challenge, all forecasts potentially flawed. Second point, the issue about demand. So the two services you've highlighted in real crisis are prisons and hospitals, and they're where people end up when everything else goes wrong. So your mental health services and everything else goes wrong, you end up in prison, and hospitals you end up in wrong when everything preventative has gone wrong. So that's also a sense that if, if you're cutting everywhere else, you shouldn't cut in the services that pick up the slack. You so yes, you can try and do things better, but it'll all, all end up there. Thirdly, particularly because you've got SIPFRA on the panel, you didn't really pick up who's making the spending reductions. So having worked in central and local government, local government has its flaws, but it's usually better at managing <laughs> in the round spending reductions and the trade-offs than central government ever is. And I just wondered if you might pick up that a bit more because your, your neighbourhood services and police, they're definitely under pressure, but the way they manage in an area and they see the trade-offs is different to a siloed central government department. So bringing out that more. And obviously we've got new bits of landscape, metro mayors, particularly what's going on in Manchester, which might be able to do some of this better planning in the round than, than central government ever can. Excellent, thank you. Very good uh, set of questions. And then thank you. Uh, Leon Feinstein, uh, Children's Commissioner's Office. Just a question about the quality of measurement, and particularly the measurement of the quality of services, because it seems to me uh. quite frustrating that, uh, for example, in relation to education, uh, we're, talk we're seeing a a level, a, a flat trend in terms of uh, key stage scores, uh, but of course what's happening to the well-being and welfare of children, about which we know very little, and where a lot of the consequences of service reductions will be felt. So I just wondered uh, if you had a view on the degree to which we've improved the capacity to really get at meaningful yeah. efficiency. Thank you. Excellent, thank you. Um, Emily, again, do you want to... Uh um, yeah, on quality of measurement, I mean, there's obviously there's, so we, our model focuses very much on inputs to outputs. So we, you know, we don't look at outcomes because we're kind of kind of trying to match spending to what then happens in the service uh, rather than what then happens in the world because, of course, there's lots of things that can affect that. But, I mean, on quality of measurement, there, is, there are some really basic things that we don't have. Um, you know, it's, I mean, you know, you'll have a look in the neighbourhood services um, chapter, that was a particular challenge for various reasons. I mean, the number of GP consultations that take place is not data that's in the public domain. Um, so there's, there's some kind of really basic things, actually GPs is one in, in particular where there's some kind of quite basic quality measures that, you know, that we would have in other services that we don't have. And so I would think, you know, yes, you know, the quality of measurement is going to, you know, it, it, it shapes what you're interested in, and what you're interested in shapes what you measure, and, you know, it's, and it's important to be reflective about those things and think about the measures that you have. But I think there's also a step prior to that, which is getting some really basic data in place that isn't there at the moment. Excellent. Nikki, you had Simon that was asking you a uh, direct yeah, yeah. question on that, but pick, do pick up on the other points as well. Um, so, uh, obviously, default mental set committees uh, do work together, and uh, on actually we're seeing more of it. Um, and we're also very conscious about trying not to tread on each other's toes. So yesterday, the Treasury Secretary launched our inquiry on student loans, but we're looking very much, we're trying to confine ourselves very much to the impact on public finances, what's happening in terms of the numbers, rather than looking at you know, the overall uh, policy towards the funding of higher education, although inevitably it's quite difficult not to stray into uh, to that territory. Um, and I think that the PAC, knowing Meg as the, the chairwoman that she is, um, you know, she will absolutely uh, continue to look at, at money, how money's been spent and the work of the NAO and, uh, and others. And you're right, say the Treasury, I mean, one of the things, the joys of being a Treasury Select Committee chair, but also the challenges is that, frankly, we could look into almost anything because the Treasury, Treasury's, as I know as a former Treasury Minister, the Treasury's fingers are in, in every pie. Uh, but, um, but we are, you know, again, trying to confine ourselves to areas where we can make a, 
a real difference. And, and, and others, we would be sitting every day between now and, well, Christmas, 20, whenever. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, so we will, we will, but those links between the committees are very strong um, in terms of working out what others are doing in terms of workload. I just want to come back on a couple of other points because I think they're really interesting. I think on the preventative um, and, and, you know, how that works, you're absolutely right to say that um, clearly, um, you know, you mentioned prisons and, and hospitals and, uh, and, and I would say the police as well, actually, in terms of the local member of parliament. You know, when other services um, aren't stepping in, particularly in terms of mental health crisis, it's often the police that are the ones that get, that get called uh, to deal with, with that. But my challenge, and I, I throw this out there really, is again, as a local member of parliament, um, I see that um, commissioning, I'd be interested perhaps in, in, in Jim's point of view on this, you know, um, commissioning practices, um, and perhaps it's the drive for, for value for money, but there are lots of small local services, often in the third sector, who could offer brilliant preventative support for actually not a huge amount of money, but for whatever reason, I don't think they even get onto the commissioning uh, frameworks, if you like, uh, in terms of being able to bid for it, filling in forms. I know, as a trustee and director of a very small mental health charity, that there are things that we have just said we just can't do because the time involved in bidding for something just is not worth it, um, and it would take us away from our core mission. Um, and I think you're right to mention devolution as well. It's kind of gone slightly off the boil uh, since you know, George Osborne left the, 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 the Treasury, but it's still obviously happening with our mayors and Andy Burnham and Andy Street and how that's going to impact on things and how they are taking on obviously responsibility for you know, Manchester, obviously, in terms of their work in the NHS, for example, which is a whole new area. And just finally, the measurement of the quality of, uh, of services, and particularly in, in education, um, and obviously well-being is a, something that, given my book, my character education book, something very close to my, my heart. And, you know, looking at those Key Stage 2 results, I mean, it's interesting, uh, Key Stage 2 and Key Stage 4, Key Stage 2 obviously begins to see a bit of an uptick. Let's see whether that's sustained. I think it will be. But obviously, you know, Key Stage 4, it takes a long time, you know, for kids to work their way right the way through the school system into GCSEs. So in a way, you're not, you know, it's difficult to measure because you want to come back and look at what the Key Stage 2 children now, or in the last couple of years, how do they do at Key Stage 4, you know, in a, in a few years' time. But one of the things I have worked out, I think on well-being, again, it's very difficult. There's been calls for a general well-being measure, and I think that's really interesting work to, to look at. I have to say, greeted with massive cynicism by uh, you know, elements of our commentariat when it was suggested. Um, goes back to your point about the bad news always gets reported, not the, not the good. Um, so we need to push back on that, those of us who are interested. I do think on character, and like I've been asked, I was asked just this morning, can you measure it? Well, the answer is, do we want to measure it? Or do we actually use other measures, which is what the schools tend to do that I interviewed for the, for the book, in terms of absenteeism, um, you know, all sorts of participation in extracurricular activities. But ultimately, isn't the test as a society, are we getting young people out of our education system who are ready for the world of further study, the world of apprenticeships, and the world of work? So again, how do you uh, measure that? But you know, as I say in the book, Whitehall likes what me gets measured gets done. Sometimes we should say, should we be measuring this, or should we just do it anyway, going back to preventative work? Thank you. Jim? Um, you had a particular SIP for uh, spending uh, reductions. Well, again, I, I don't really want to generalise um, <laughs> on this, whether local government uh, do it better than, than central government. So, for example, you know, SIP for at the moment are doing, uh, undertaking a number of financial re resilience reviews, for example, um, with local authorities, which doesn't suggest that they're any better. Um, so all I would say in terms of local government have probably been doing it longer, a, a lot longer, um, but certainly in terms of, I think with the public sector there is a, is a problem where 
you know, local government, central government, health working silos to some extent, and they don't share best practice in, in terms of around these areas. And I think there needs to be um, much more of that going forward. And can I just say something on uh, select committees? Um, I used to support select committees uh, quite a while ago, but I, I don't think I ever came across um, an instance where um, a departmental select committee would cover exactly the same ground as the PAC or indeed the Treasury Committee. And every departmental uh, select committee um, has a responsibility, as you well know, to review a government department's performance mm -hmm. every uh, parliamentary cycle, um, looking at its, you know, the, the value for money elements and, and, and the financial um, elements too. And that was one of my jobs to, to support parliamentarians to help them do that. <laughs> Great. Okay. And just on, there, there, was, there was a comment about OBR's um, forecasting. Duncan, I think, was uh, having, uh, for, uh, to speak on behalf of Robert Choate, I think his answer would be something along the lines of, actually, the OBR produces a model. It can check whether it worked or not, and we can have a rational discussion on that. And I suppose that's at the heart of something we're saying about the OBR for public spending. Let's get a model. Let's get something which can work or not work, and you can go back and refine it, whereas at the moment each review has its own set of assumptions and data chucked in, which is actually very difficult to learn of. Um, do other people who want to sort of come in uh, now, I'll just start right at the front here and then go across there and then there. Thank you. Uh, Tim Harford from the Financial Times. Um, could you explain a little bit more, uh, Dr. Andrews, about the connection between the starting point of your presentation and the end points? You started by saying that um, the government was very reactive, waited for things to blow up before responding, wasn't planning well enough. Seems plausible. The, the solution you propose is, is this uh, transparent, independent scrutiny of assumptions. It also seems plausible, but I can't quite follow the connection between the starting point and the end point. The, is it that you think that the fundamental reason why government is crisis-driven is that uh, planning assumptions are, are not being scrutinised? Or is it something else? And if it's something else, what can we do about it? Okay, excellent question. Uh, Martin Wheatley, uh, advisor and researcher on public services of particular interest in social housing. Um, this question or comment really about the grow what I see as a growing um, public conversation and political interest in uh, the low income and vulnerable part of the population. Um, and uh, which I think you know, we've seen with uh, in reaction to Grenfell Tower and uh, the current uh, controversy about universal credit and so on. And I just wonder whether um, uh, this, this sort of analysis would be strengthened if uh, there were a data set looking specifically at the performance of public services in relation mm. to low-income and vulnerable people. Because, uh, obviously, uh, if public services are not working effectively, that will tend to have a particularly acute effect on households that are particularly dependent on those services compared with the rest of us. Great, thank you. Uh, and then, final question for this batch, just over there. Um, Richard. Hi there. Um, and it's a sort of comment, Julian, it's Richard Douglas, who's one of the authors of the report, who's really coming back on this local central issue, which I think is a really important one. And I think the, I, the part of the key to this is that the initial spending reductions, you go back to 2010, there was quite 
a deliberate effort, and I was a, a finance director in Whitehall at the time, to actually push those decisions out to local bodies, whether they're local authorities, whether they're local NHS bodies, local schools. And it was for a combination of good reasons and bad reasons. The good reasons were people locally actually were far better placed to make decisions than someone sat in Whitehall. Um, the bad reason, I guess, was it really distanced Whitehall and Westminster from the, yep, what was being done out there. And one of the things I think we've come through as we've gone through this report is this ability to push every decision down to that local level to make savings is sort of running out of steam a little bit. And if you're going to do things that are, are truly transformational, you need some national leadership and national direction for that. You can't just leave it to people out there. And I think that's the balance that changed probably and tipped in the, the sort of later part of the 2010 spending review. So it was a comment rather than a question. No, that's excellent. Very useful. Uh, great. Nikki, do you want to open up on possibly picking up on the vulnerable uh, workers, Martin's point? Well, I think, it's I, I think fascinating um, how it's done and what the data sets are and everything else would be, um, I mean, you know, great. I think you've given the IFG some more work to do. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, but you're right. I mean, obviously there is, a, there is a, a growing conversation. I think particularly around the debate um, has perhaps until most recently been all about getting people into work. Um, and now, of course, lots of people are, given the employment figures, you know, in, in work, but what's that doing and what security is that uh, providing? I think there's also a wider debate about the kind of values we have as a country. And I think that Grenfell Tower, the, you know, the tragedy that unfolded, that, that um, opened up that wider uh, debate. So, um, yes, I think, just you know, from an education point of view, I mean, obviously, we have um, things like pupil premium um, and specific support for two-year-olds from disadvantaged, you know, families. Um, I think there is a lot of work about analysing, you know, what's what's how how uh, how effective are those um, is that spending uh, and those programmes. Um, but of course, m more always can be can be done. So um, I'd be very interested to know what uh, what would be the best way of of measuring that. The more information we have, I just want to pick up also about um, data. I just thought it was really interesting Emily's point about data sets and what's lacking. Um, and actually, we used to have this debate in, you know, obviously in the Department of Education about the data that was being put out there and yeah. what is. And I think it would be really useful, actually, for ministers. I don't think ministers necessarily always are made aware of the requests for uh, data um, and what's available and what, what isn't. It's a side of uh, being a, a minister um, that, apart from we get, you know, really that sort of admin side of things is just not, not very obvious to us as ministers, apart from when you get something like an FOI request where you're asked to judge know that, that's tricky that you make decisions but it's comp that's obviously very very different uh, so I think um, that would be interesting to know. Excellent. Um, Emily do you want to yeah. come back uh, I think Tim in particular had a yes. specific request Actually, for piecing the, chat the logic there together. Was a it was a really good challenge. Um, so politicians react to crisis and politicians don't want to react to crisis they don't want to get into crisis but they also want civil servants to tell them that they can manage the spending reductions that they want to do and it will all be fine. And that's the kind of, and it's, you know, through that process, again, not deliberately, but we see optimism bias starting to creep in. If you had an independent body telling them it won't be fine and if you do this, your crisis is going to come, then, they'll, then, you know, you might get the same reaction to the possibility of a crisis before it happens, 
as you would to an actual crisis when people have suffered. So that's my answer. And, and I think we're not saying that the, that solves every problem in public Indeed. spending. <laughs> you know, there are other issues here. Nothing, but solves, every <laughs> nothing solves every problem. But actually, I'm interested in going back to Nikki, because we're slightly taking politicians' names in vain on, on that yeah. one. But there are certain things that we see, and it probably falls on a little bit from Richard's question, and relates to what we were talking about with Andrew, that you know, actually pushing stuff down, if you think there's inefficiency in the system, actually it's quite a good way of finding it. It's very difficult to find it from the centre. Um, but transformation, some of the big politics of things like what are we going to do about social care? We've got a project coming up over the next year looking at how do you open up the long-term funding of the NHS in face of demographics. Pro issues that politics really hasn't yet really been able to get into. Other ways, what, what can, obviously other people can open up the debate, but at the end of the day, how's our politics actually going to face up to some of these things? How do you think that will play? context um, and I think you're right about um, other people like FG think tanks and, and, and others uh, can absolutely open up d debates and sometimes debates are opened up by by events and circumstances you say the the, the, the crisis if you like happens unexpectedly um, or suddenly the public pressure is ramped up about something in a way that uh, that nobody uh, expected um, I think that um, you know, it's it, it is very different I mean, social care is, is one of the issues uh, certainly as a constituency member of Parliament I identified about 12 months ago or so that there was a real issue with um, uh, social care, not in terms of, I mean, there is an issue obviously in terms of provision of funding, but there's also an issue of, as a country that we have not thought about it hard enough. Mm. A bit like pensions, we all assume that it will be fine when we get to the age of 65. Mm. Um, and I had a lot of constituency cases where people would come to me and say, um, mum's had a fall, she's in hospital, dad has dementia, uh, what do I do now? And they had, there was no, so the question is, I suppose, what can we perhaps, um, f first of all, we have to have a political uh, sort of a agreement, this is a, an issue. Um, I, I go back to sensible coverage uh, about this and encouraging debate. And when people put ideas out, and you saw this with Jackie Doyle Price the other day, her comments on, you know, picked up from a party conference fringe meeting, actually she was putting an, you know, something out there about the use of people's assets and homes when they get older. Uh, hysteria yeah. uh, ensues. H how is that meant to encourage politicians and ministers to float ideas other than in the safety of their own offices when you have a briefing note from the civil service who are, by and large, actually, they do give you the options. They will say this is what could happen in, in a few years' time on our, on, our, on our assumptions. So we have got to get more grown up about having these issues and facing them down. And actually, this is the moment of the political cycle to do it. Because, um, you know, I'm, I'm an optimist. I think this government is here for the long term, till 2022. <laughs> so uh, the social care thing, I think it teaches us don't make controversial announcements in manifesto launches. Uh, but now is the time to actually get people together and really think the, the hard things and, and, and question. Excellent. Thank you. Jean, is there anything you wanted to... Um, just picking up on the, the sort of um, low-income um, group of people, interesting in the report, um, if you got sort of towards the end, where we looked at neighbourhood services um, in local authorities, and I think we made the point there about the absence of data, really. So we really don't know how, you know, how much they've been cut. So in important areas, such as some of the regulatory functions that they're responsible for, um, and generally, those are the areas that would touch upon vulnerable uh, people. The other, the other aspect which is related is around public satisfaction and opinion. So throughout the report, I think in most ca cases, you know, it, it, it's sort of leveled. There's been no <coughs> real significant
significant drop in public opinion. But I just wonder, within that, who are we asking the questions of? And are we really getting to those vulnerable groups in terms of, you know, um, of asking about their experiences of uh, the services? So maybe that's something for the next performance tracker. Sorry, I'm adding, we're adding <laughs> making the list here. Always keep going. <laughs> Excellent. Um, any more qu questions, comments, uh, lady at the front? Frankie Hackett from the National Audit Office. Um, I, I just wanted to ask, where do you think that the major IT programs of the government's currently um, in, in, in progress <laughs> on fit in with this idea of the uh, crisis cash cycle is, is, do you feel that there's a lot of reliance being placed on IT programs, is perhaps not enough being done in terms of digitization, um, and, and will the IT programs deliver what they are promising, I suppose? Excellent, thank you. Thanks. Uh, my name is Rupert Gill. I uh, work for HMRC. Um, my question actually is a bit about um, like since since 2010, we've had a sort of fair chance to see what kind of things work and what kind of things don't work. So a couple of things have come up. So digitalization is one. When we are thinking, right, we've got to think in advance about reform, what kind of reform should we be thinking about? Um, which ones have we learned much on that so far? So the early intervention agenda, particularly with disadvantaged um, kids in particular, you know, has that. There's, there's a bit of a drive in government to... Um, to, to get really stuck into that territory. Um, is it now time to see whether that's worked or not? Other, other things are, you know, some of the community budget sort of sharing responsibility across agencies. Nikki, you mentioned that's maybe <laughs> coming under a lot of stress right now. Uh, but, you know, those kind of, which of those kind of initiatives, and, the, you know, the 2010 spending review did bring a lot of enthusiasm to try different things. You sort of forget a bit that actually wasn't just salami slicing. There was, uh, there was sort of some big ideas in the mix there. So. Uh, do you have any reflections on which those are sort of proving the front runners now? Excellent, thank you. Um, Emily, do you want to? Um, so, I mean, I can pick up on the IT point, although I'm afraid I can only say something quite general about it, which is that what we now know, kind of, you know, now that government is trying, central government certainly, and there's kind of more of a move doing this elsewhere, of trying a kind of new approaches to IT, you know, we're not calling it IT anymore, we're calling it digital, we're doing it much more iteratively, um, and kind of the, what, you know, what we've, what the IFG has found in our work is that the problem is, is that the, the kind of the way that government organisations are set up is fundamentally kind of at odds with the way that developing IT programmes in that way um, needs to work. And so, you know, I would say that there's something, you know, that's why people call it digital transformation, is that actually it's not because kind of tech is so transformational, it's because you do actually have to change an organisation in order to make that stuff work, um, and, and, and that's tough, so. Nikki, do you want to? Well, what I'm telling you is, as a minister, when somebody mentions a large IT project, um, <laughs> you look scared. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and, um, I mean, obviously there are, there are some projects, I mean, there are, there are some uh, digitisation and, and media projects, it's just essential. You know, there are some IT systems that just have to be uh, replaced. And, you know, obviously we questioned HMRC about customs um, and preparedness. And, you know, whatever happens in March 2019, um, then, you know, we're going to have to have a new, I mean, there is a new customs system coming anyway, and it's clearly going to have to be enhanced in order to deal with, uh, you know, more, more customs declarations. And there's obviously, I suppose the other thing I was going to say was, we've also got to remember all this. And I was going to say, uh, you've got to remember 
real people are using all this. And I think that sometimes, and it's, again, it's very hard to build in that as an assumption. <coughs> actually, how are people going to use this system? I mean, I think actually gov.uk, there are many aspects of it that are excellent. Um, and I can tell you as a minister, I would sit there and, and use it and see what was, what was there and, uh, and everything else. Um, but of course, you've got different age groups and different expectations. And people are using um, non-government services. So things like childcare, you know, obviously there's been issues over the summer. Um, they will be resolved. Um, but the question is people's expectations, particularly the younger generation of IT, is very, very high now. So how does government keep up with that? In terms of, of um, uh, transformation, and I think one of the, the, the things, I can't remember when they did it, but David Cameron and Nick Clegg launched that um, ideas website for people in working in government and outside to, to, to submit ideas about how they thought. Because actually the best people to ask for how things can be improved or done differently are the people who are working absolutely in the system at the moment. And I do wonder whether perhaps it's time to do that again. Uh, people have seen what's happened and, you know, are we, can we ask again what people would like to, to do differently or, you know, seven years down the, down the line. I think for me, though, it is this cross-departmental working. I was just thinking about the, the question about the vulnerable families and just thinking the other thing, of course, is that people don't live their lives in silos. And that was the thing about the troubled families, what was trying to do was to bring together so people had one key person who could deal with all the other agencies as opposed to lots of agencies piling in and trying to help one family. And again, what could be done, uh, to, you know, the, the cross-departmental working is going to have to be improved. That's got to come from the top, it's got to come from ministers and senior civil servants actually doing uh, all of that um, to give, I think, to show that it can be done better on the ground. And I go back to my example about young people's mental health where actually you can see on the ground that schools and uh, G local GPs and, and CAM services want to work better together. Um, actually, there was an appetite amongst civil servants for to talk to Department of Health and Department of Education working together, but it's keeping that on track. Awesome, thank you. I'm probably not the best person either to talk about um, IT, particularly <laughs> given I was presenting to this international group earlier this week where I was reeling off a catalogue of uh, IT um, failures in, in, in government. But that said, I mean, in terms of, you know, the government has a, an industrial strategy, um, which is really pushing the digitalization agenda. I think that's probably right. Um, I think that it doesn't apply to every um, single uh, service. But from an accounting uh, perspective, digitalization, artificial intelligence is fundamentally going to change the way accountants, professional accountants work um, in the future. And that would include you know, you in the National Audit <laughs> Office as, as well as uh, accountants working in and across uh, government. Excellent, thank you. Um, just one thing that was sort of striking me there in, the, in the, the sort of discussion, there's a lot of reforms that really depend on people having the time and space uh, and energy to make them work. Um, and you were mentioning in health, and I think we picked this up a lot in the Institute, and people just not senior leaders, but also people working throughout the organisation, there just simply isn't the bandwidth to keep things moving when organisations get under so much stress, but also think about how you're going to transform and make them work. Rush digital implementation is an utter disaster, as read a few NAO and indeed IFG reports. Um, so I wonder, this cycle, it's one of the most pernicious things about the cycle that we observe, that when you get something gets past a certain point, it becomes very hard to fix, especially if the fix needs to be transformatory. I don't know, Pamela, any thoughts on, you know, what? What does that imply? Where do we see that most? What can we do to try and avoid these sort of cycles or to help people get through them? Um, I don't know. Do you, 
I suppose the word I was thinking was, do you ever avoid the cycles? Maybe you can smooth them out a bit. Um, but um, there's always <coughs> going to be, um, uh, there's the ongoing business of, of government, and can you do that you mm. know, more efficiently? Um, and then there will be the issues where clearly something is no longer fit for purpose or, um, you know, it's just got to be uh, updated. So I'm thinking about perhaps the curriculum in terms of, uh, of schools where, frankly, just the needs of employers and, per, you know, universities and others just changes. You've got to update it. And then there is the, the, the transformation. Now, whether that's driven because of money or whether that's driven, as I say, you know, that because things like the industrial strategy is a really good example where you just we've just got to work at how is the UK going to get itself... Um, you know, onto the, the, the global stage and, and keep ourselves relevant in terms of new, new technologies, for, for example. Um, and I think creating that brain space, and I think it's, you know, the difficulty is, I think just 21st century life and demands and the new cycle and everything else is just so much faster. And it's very hard to say, I just haven't had the time to focus you know, sufficiently on this, which is why it's going to take longer. I think there are more and more demands. Probably select committees and others can be guilty of this. You know, when's it going to happen? Um, and, and placing those expectations for delivery dates. And are they unreasonable delivery dates? Okay, thank you. Emery, any sort of thoughts wrapping up from the discussion we've been having? Um, you know, what, what, what do you think comes out of Performance Tracker? What do you reflect on from the discussion? Where do you think we're going next? Okay, so I mean, and, and kind of like picking up on that on the question that you asked at the end. You know, we have, you know, our we haven't got a rag rating, but we do have a spectrum. There is a clear spectrum in the report, and you'll see that they were actually kind of coloured slightly raggishly, my boxes. <laughs> uh, so it's crept in there, uh, <laughs> and you know, and and so that the, and and kind of within that, we do see examples where you know government has actually managed to react before that breaking point has happened. So we know that it it, it is possible, right? Um, and, you know, sticking plasters are a term that we refer to, that, you know, we kind of use quite derogatorily, right? You know, we say sticking plaster injection, but the fact is a sticking plaster serves a purpose if you use it properly to actually do the healing that goes on underneath. Um, uh, and that's kind of actually, I think, the real challenge for government right now. Okay, this spending, fine, but the, I think the thing that probably most, most worries me is the lack of a clear medium-term plan for what comes after the sticking plaster gets ripped off to kind of make sure that the healing's going on. And I think that's the thing I'm going to keep watching for. Um, just going back to what I said at the beginning, there's really sort of the, the absence of those big plans, you know, how are we going to solve adult social care, the, the lack of the, the, the innovative um, thinking there, and, um, and that needs to happen because obviously we're not just providing services for today, we're providing them 20 or 30 years hence and they need to be sustainable. So if anything, I'd want to see more around that particular area. Any final words, Nikki? Well, I think obviously it's very helpful, and I think opportunities like this to, to, to stand back and to have you know, external bodies. And I think it's really helpful that the IFG and others, you know, do provide that sometimes that brain space, which actually I think when you are particularly at the moment when Whitehall is challenged to deliver, as somebody described it, something I was at this morning, the biggest public policy project that we have seen mm. for decades and decades and decades. And I think those working in Whitehall would agree that a lot of the oxygen is being sucked out of other departments in order to deliver Brexit. And that means that actually they're then, you know, the reliance or the need for external challenge and external thinking, um, it, you know, is ever more important. Excellent. Thank you all very much. Um, and just to say a final bit, uh, one of the things about Performance Tracker is we keep tracking. <laughs> uh, we have a little bit of a break. Hopefully the Treasury are moving following a recommendation of ourselves, the IFS and the CIOT, to annual budgets. So our next Performance Tracker will come out in 12 months' time. 
when no doubt we will be seeing a turnaround in some of the areas we've been looking at uh, and a fully formed plan for the delivery of Brexit. Um, but also, if you're reading Performance Tracker and you think there's a piece of data here um, that actually really should be in here because it's the key thing to look at in the way we're working at, please just do get in touch with us because we really want to improve the quality of the product. It'd be even better if that data exists and you know where it is. <laughs> um, but, you know, we'll take all comers on that. Um, but with that said, uh, just a chance to thank the panel very much for their contributions and uh, to wish you all well for the rest of the day.